I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Julie Lawrence is a communication specialist and journalist. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Defy, a digital magazine for unapologetic women. So forget recipes, workouts, and diet tips. Defy Magazine is all about validating women's anger and frustration by exposing how misogyny infiltrates the workplace. She's been seen on CBC, Business Wire, Financial Post, and much more. So please welcome to the show, Julie Lawrence. Hi, McKinney. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come on and share your journey with us. My pleasure. (laughs) So I I just want to start like, so usually before we jump into the conversation, sometimes I like to give a little backstory of how we connected. And for the listeners, uh, if they recall, we had Jennifer Ettinger on who has been an amazing connector in terms of a lot of the women that I presently know and love and am inspired by. So when you were starting Defy Magazine, she connected us and I'm honored to be on the board member of one of the advisors for Defy Magazine. But I think it's amazing the work that you are doing and the information that you're putting out there and just the impact that you're making. Oh, thank you so much. And I, I mean, I'm so honored to have you as part of my advisory board. It was really important to have that, to be able to talk to other really like established influential women about this stuff before I even launched the magazine, right? To make sure that I'm on the right track and I'm talking about stuff that is relevant to women and that other people have experienced, right? So it was really, um, I felt really like safe in launching the magazine, having women like you have my back. Yes, absolutely. So before we like dive into more about the magazine, I want to get to your backstory of where you started, you know, your journey before we get to where you are presently. But I'd love to know a little bit more about your childhood, like who young Julie was before you became who you are presently. 
So tell us a little bit about what you were like as a teenager and what your aspirations were. So I grew up in a house where it was kind of a weird dynamic because my brother and sister are both a lot older than me and very close together. They're like Irish twins. And then like seven years later, I came along. So in a lot of ways, like I have siblings and I love them, and but I never really grew up with them. Like I almost had, I was almost like a, an only child household because like when I was 12, my sister went off to university. So I didn't really have that connection. And I'm just kind of fostering that now actually with my with my sister, right? Because her life was so different and so far off for me. So she, you know, she moved and I didn't get to know her that well. So I grew up kind of as an only child and I was, I think like a really busy kid. I went to like an all girls um, private school, which was not a great experience. I was really badly bullied. I had a lot of like kind of crappy um, social interactions going on um, when I was kind of a, a young teen, kind of late elementary school. But I also had, I was actually a national level gymnast. So my life, like my mom would pick me up from school at like 3.15 and I was off, like it was like a 45 minute drive to the gym. I'd like eat all my meals and try to do homework in the car. And then I'd be there from like four to eight every night and then get driven home, dropped off, you know, quick dinner, homework. Like it was just very busy. So in a lot of ways, I'm so grateful that I grew up when I did, because although the bullying was bad and it was like not fun when I was there, obviously at school, it didn't follow me home. Like there was no social media. I had a really good, like I had my friends from gymnastics and all of that. So that kept me really busy. Like I was training like, you know, 25 hours a week from like eight years old to like 13. And then around like 13, 14, when I like, I kind of went through puberty and I literally went from being like four, seven to five, seven in like six months. So I was like, this is not you know, the Olympic dream is going to die here because I'm so tall and everything's so hard. But I, I kind of like for, like, I just went right into soccer. So I kind of played soccer. Like my parents always made sure that I had kind of a fallback and I went right into playing soccer and I played a really high level soccer all through university and then high level club soccer. So I was just really like, I was always an athlete. I was really busy, which I think kept me out of trouble in my early years, but I got into all kinds of trouble later in life. So like, (laughs) it didn't miss me, that's for sure. But it was just very busy. And I went to Carleton for university. I was actually pretty young. I was only 17 when I went and everyone in Ontario grade 13 at that point. So it was like 20 year olds and me and uh, played soccer there and didn't do that well in school because I was like, way too young to be like living on my own and being like, you don't go to class. But yeah, and then I ended up moving home. And and that was kind of like, if I can just describe my my teen years, it was just like, I was very busy. Wow. So I'm sorry, you had to experience that bullying as a child. But you've been able to, I guess, take that energy. And I feel like putting it into what you do now. Um, Yeah, And I think it took me a while to get here. Like I've I don't think I was like the nicest person in high school, like, but I really believe that like hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it was like, I was trying to find my footing where it was like, I really learned early on to like, the boys were better, like girls were mean and boys were fun. And I kind of like picked a team and and went with it. So I think that I was like, you know, I was like there to like laugh at the girls they hooked up with or clean up their mess or whatever. Like I really gravitated towards that team because I was so hurt by women. So it took me like the pendulum swinging back to now be like, oh, no, like women are not the enemy. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 And actually that that whole taking care of men thing got me into like a lot of professional trouble as well. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I read one of the um, articles where you spoke about some of those things. So I guess 
if you want to give us the Coles Notes version or for our US audience, the Cliff Notes version of <laughs> how you got to where you are now and I guess the experiences that brought Defy Magazine to life. Yeah, so I'll try to be as quick as possible, though I could go on forever. But I graduated with a PR degree and I went into communications and I was working in government communications, which was like very buttoned down, like gray wallpaper, like very cubicle land. And I was kind of like headhunted to go to an advertising agency and ad agencies. This was like the ad agency of the time, right? Like very cool. Like, so I went from like government, everybody with buttoned up blouses to like, everybody's like going by on scooters and there's like a beer tap and a pool table. And it was so cool. And this open concept. So I was just like culture shock, like work-wise. Right. And I learned really early there that my job was to be like relational to men. Like the creative team would like, they were all men, all the creatives, and they would, they all had beards and they'd like lie around and you'd have to like tiptoe around them because asking them to do their job might make them angry because they're the creatives. They're like the brains behind the operation. And we just are there to like keep the client happy and, and keep everybody happy, which was kind of a shock to me because I came from the department of finance where like the leaders, like my, my boss was a woman, the deputy minister was a woman. So I, I kind of swung to the other end of the pendulum, but it actually became really natural to me because like I said, I was on the boys team, right? Mm -hmm. That was kind of like my natural. So I was like, okay, I just want, I'm just here to make life easier for them. That's what I've done my whole life. Great. So I was there for a bit and then I moved to a, just a different agency, same stuff, right? Same look, the same feel, the same, just different people. And uh, it was kind of like, I always say it was like that frog in the water, right? Where it's like, it's boiling, but you don't notice because you got it in when it was really cold. So I put up with tons of crap and I've been like catering to men and making their life easier and, and funnier. And, you know, I, I almost felt like a babysitter a lot of the time. Like, please may you do your work for a second, like sorry wow. to interrupt hanging around time. And I actually had coffee with another ex-colleague that said the exact same thing. She felt like a babysitter. Like it was like ruining their day that you had to ask them to do their job. And so I put up with so much crap that when I went to this other agency, I was at like a, a party, like a staff party. And this like, I won't say his title, but he was 20 years older than me. And, and we, he kissed me and we kind of hooked up. And I was like, I was very like, I, I think I, I obviously very wrongly thought that like he was like such a genius and so brilliant and so well regarded that if he like if he liked me, I must be pretty special, right? Like mm -hmm. he wouldn't just like risk all of this stuff for someone that wasn't super special. So I like I really loved that feeling and I felt really complicit in it because it wasn't like I consented. I was into it. Like I liked him back. I liked him way more than he liked me. And that kind of sparked this kind of affair that went on for, for, for way too long, like years. And it ended up being like, it started off really exciting. And then it would be like, he was using me like financially and physically and emotionally. And it was just like, it was such a beat down and it was such a blur between professional boundaries and emotional. Like I just, I would go to like pitches and it would be harder. Like I'd be more nervous about what he would say or what he would think. And he's supposed to be on my team. Mm -hmm. And I started like, I, you know, I, I had to look perfect. I had to dress perfect or he would make fun of me or if I like, you know, and these guys were like, it wasn't just him, but even like the owner of the company, these old advertising guys would be like, uh, you'd wear a certain outfit and it'd be like, you know, like you gained weight. You know what oh, I mean? Wow. Like it, like this license to say whatever they wanted to us and like be made fun of and the butt of the joke and all of this stuff while you're doing so much work to keep the lights on. So it was really hard. And I think that during that time, I started having this like, I couldn't stand what I was doing, like how I was behaving because it didn't match up with who I was, like who I thought I was like morally 
my values. So there was this kind of disconnect between my morals and how I'm behaving. And it was so uncomfortable in that in-between zone that I just started drinking. And I would drink and I didn't want to go home at night. And I would like, I just couldn't stand how I was feeling. And the worst that the kind of the, as the relationship went on, and it would be things like, you know, he would text me to come to the office when I was at like my grandmother's birthday party. And I would do it because I was so invested and I would get there and he would just be like, oh, sorry, I've got to go. Like he would do it just to see if I would show up. Or he would like invite me for lunch, but he had already ordered and would leave me with the bill. Like it was just that constant me trying to like get his approval and get his love, but it was never going to happen. Like he was mm-hmm. never, it was just, he wanted the things that he wanted for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I, I couldn't get that. And it just started to be like really heartbreaking, but also professionally damaging. It was really hard. So I was drinking more and more and there was like, it was already like, there was a lot of alcohol and drugs anyway in the industry. So it was just kind of like the perfect storm for me to my demise. So I really started in advertising as this like up and comer, had it all together, doing really well, high flying. And by the time I left, it was like, I was a mess. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was really bad. And so I thought that when I left that business, that agency that I would be like, I'll, I'll leave him and I'll leave all that behind and I'll get a different job and my life will be different. And I can put all this behind me. But like, as we all know, with like the geographical cure does not work, right. The damage done to me, who I was as a person. And I had this hole in my soul that I was, you know, I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't stand how it felt to be me. So it was just like a steady demise. I would be able to like talk my way into getting jobs, but I couldn't I couldn't keep them because I couldn't, I really couldn't stay sober. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, I just stopped. I stopped applying. I stopped having any kind of inclination towards like a professional environment. And I was just running around with drug dealers and drinking nonstop. I couldn't take a sober breath. I was in and out of rehabs and hosp- a lot of hospitals. And it was really scary. Like I went from a person that I, you know, I kind of had it all together to someone you wouldn't even recognize. Wow. Um, it was really ugly. Yeah, it was really ugly. I am so sorry you had to experience all of that. And I don't want to simplify your experience at all. But it sounds like you experienced narcissistic abuse. And you, because of how they leave you feeling so empty, you, to numb that, went to the alcohol and drugs. And then, mm-hmm. like you said, you know, leaving that person or that environment, if we don't heal, internally it basically we start to attract the same type of thing. oh yeah and I kept making the same like just and my I don't you know my drug use and my alcohol abuse and the way that I was living was super high risk too it's not like you know I meet lots of people I work with other alcoholics now that are like oh I was so reclusive I was like I wasn't I was like <laughs> you know out in the world like really putting myself at risk right like I had absolutely no self-worth mm-hmm. that it was like I was sleeping with people I didn't know, I would like, you know, I'd be on like a three day bender and wake up like in a motel somewhere and like, no idea who these people are. Like, I am so in a lot of ways lucky that I got through that relatively unscathed. I mean, it did a lot of damage, but I'm alive. Um, So that's huge. But it was like, you know, the more drinking and drugs that you do, and the more that lifestyle takes on the less savory your company becomes, right? You just end up hanging people that are like you and attracting kind of just a really crude lifestyle. And like, yeah. And so the people that knew me as I was were just like, they didn't know me anymore. So I just like all of those old friendships and even my, you know, my family hung on, but barely. Right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. That's what we're in harmony with, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, like attracts like. I mean, attracts like. And when you, yeah, not, you have absolutely no self value, you put yourself in really, because you're just trying to feel something. Yeah. So, what was your healing journey like from the alcohol and drug addiction? Like, what was your. Well, what happened with me is, and this is where I get like, I don't, I had, like I said, I'd been like, I would drink myself into the hospital lots of times. And the last, the last kind of summer, I was living in this little like one bedroom that my dad was paying for only because he just couldn't sleep at night if I was homeless, right? Mm -hmm. That was the only, and I want to be clear about that. It was just uh, circumstantial that I wasn't wasn't homeless. Um, So he kind of put me, and I always describe it as like the drawer of the morgue. Like it was just tiny oh, wow. and it put me in and he was like, I just assumed we'd be burying you, but I can't sleep at night knowing that you're on the streets. Like I won't do that. And so I, it was like a really bad kind of last, I would say like six months. I was just so, so sick, like so run down physically that I ended up in the hospital again and my parents were with me. I kind of remember it's very blurry. And I remember I was trying to knock myself out. Like I was hitting my head up against the wall, trying to knock myself out so that I just, they would either pay attention to me at the hospital because going in with alcohol and drugs to an ER is a nightmare in itself. Cause nobody, everyone thinks you did it to yourself. You're like a second class citizen. So I was like, I need people to pay attention to me. If I just knock myself out, this will be over. It was a really bad scene. And that day, for whatever reason, the, the nurse and the admin people were just like so kind to me. And they got me in and they got me hooked up to Valium intravenously. And so I could deal with kind of like the withdrawal. And I just remember my parents, the look on their face was just like, it was awful, right? I just remember all of it. Mm-hmm. And I had a bed at an all-female rehab on like the Friday. And this was like a Tuesday. And so they sent me home with my parents and they were like, keep her moderately drunk because you can't withdraw. Like she's she's unsafe for like non-medical treatment. And they got me to this rehab and I got there for whatever reason, like McKinney, I don't even know. It was no different than any other trip to rehab. I'd been there like five times, Um, but it just was like, I was done. I think I knew that like my family was done with me. Like if I didn't get it this time, like there was nowhere else to go. Like I I always say I ran out of at least. And what I mean by that is like my whole life, I'd be like, well, at least I didn't do that. Well, at least I didn't do that. And when I out of them like it was like there is nowhere lower to go here all the things I swore I would never do I did mm-hmm. right so it's like either like you're gonna die or you're gonna get well like that's that's the crossroads I was at and I really believe that and so I was there for 42 days I got out got right into the uh, recovery meeting and I met this woman who was like 35 years sober and I basically went up to her I was like I'm desperate I need to do like, how did you do it? And she was like, I'll tell you exactly what I did. And so we started meeting once a week and she took me through the book and we, I did exactly what she did and I had exactly the same result. Wow. And so that was the first time I learned that the other women that are doing better than you or, or whatever are your, definitely your guiders and your teachers. And yeah. I use that every facet of my life now, but it's like, I just grabbed on with both hands to this one woman that was like, I got you, you know, Um, I had to, it was like a rebirth, like everything in my life completely changed, like to the point that my dad, my dad, for example, was like, when I was drinking and using, I was like in and out of jail, because I would like steal from the liquor store. And I was in the drunk tank all the time. And I was in a lot of legal trouble. And I had a DUI and all the crap, right. So if I was going to go into my parents house, I had to take a breathalyzer to like go through the front door. And if I was drunk, I was turfed out, right. Mm -hmm. And everything that they owned of value was locked up. Cause I would take it and I would sell it. Right. So I went for years, I was like that. And within a year, like less than a year of 
being recovered and, and finishing working with this woman, I had a personality change so that when my dad would look me in the eyes, he was like, he knew I was not a person that would do that anymore. It was like, mm. here's the visa, go get groceries. Here's the Mercedes. Like, it, it was like, he's like, I just knew that your personality had changed. Yeah. Like you were not a person that was able to, like capable of doing any of that anymore. Yeah. And so there, I just like everything in my world changed so that it was like, my very first thought is always, how can I be useful to someone else? Mm-hmm. Right. And a big part of that was this defy thing, right? Like it was like, I, I kind of got, I got better and I wanted to be of maximum usefulness to mm-hmm. other women and to other people, right? Like I don't, I try to, I, I really try to think of myself very little because that gets me in trouble. I can't yeah. be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many things in what you said that I want to highlight and let's see how my memory works today. If I can get through them. But, <laughs> Sorry. Um, I know. Long with it. Long story, so. No, <laughs> yeah. like within your story, there were so many important points. Well, it's all important, but there's so many points that I want to highlight that anyone who is listening can resonate depend like no matter what their story is. So there's a, a point where you realized for yourself that enough was enough. No matter what our situation is, whether we're in an abusive relationship, whether we're abusing substances, whatever it is, it always has to be for us, we get to a point where enough is enough in order Mm -hmm. for us to make that change. And I think for those people who are listening, especially if they're supporting someone who is in that situation, or for example, your parents, they, they love you, and they were there for you to their capacity, but it was up to you to make that decision. And then even in them being there for you, they had to have boundaries for themselves so that they weren't depleted. So basically you taking the breathalyzer before you came in, like they needed <laughs> yeah, to know it was, that. Yeah, yeah it was necessary for them. I'm glad you brought that up, that it has to be your decision because I think a lot of the times we get in these like situations where you just want to like shake the person, right? But it's like, there was no amount, like I knew that fear mongering didn't work for me, right? Because I would get so sick, be in the hospital, that didn't work. Uh, self-knowledge didn't work for me because I would go to rehabs and come out with all of this information about what to do. And the, like, and that didn't work for me. And there was no consequence bad enough. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, at a certain point, you have to protect yourself. And that's yeah. what my parents do. Right. Because I remember my mom had to get like a bite plate and she'd have to take like anti-anxiety meds because she was just, and my dad was like, you can't, you can't do this to my wife. Right. She's yeah. my, my person. Yeah. And so, you know, I know that was almost impossible for them. Right. Yeah. Because it's, I know even now with working with other addicts and alcoholics that it's like, you cannot convince someone that they need this, right? Like something has to happen. And for me, I, I I look back, I think it's just grace, right? Like something happened in the universe for me that it was like, if you don't get off the speeding train right now, I don't know when it will slow down again. Yeah. Right. You, you had your own aha moment. Like, but at the end of the day, we, we can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. I think oftentimes we try to force our help onto people. And then if we don't get the result or the reaction or, you know, whatever we expected, then we feel disappointed or get upset when or it's not. Yeah. Or resentful. Right. It's like, yeah. why can't you do it for me? Don't you love me enough? Right. right. It's like, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Looking yeah. at my mom, who's like, you know, a shadow of herself. She's so, and it's like, if that doesn't do it, right. If the woman yeah. that gave life to me is that scared, if you think that you can help, like it just, sometimes you just have to protect yourself. Yeah. You can love from a distance, but like, and some of my, I have really good friends from childhood that still won't talk to me. But yeah. So I, I, and also that speaks to 
their paradigm and things that they may have to process, right? Because sometimes when we know someone and we see them going down a path that we may not think is best for them, we have no control over that person. We can barely control ourselves, but it's, it's understanding that that's where they are in their journey, but you've evolved from that and become who you are today. But some people are still stuck in who the Julie was that they, yeah, maybe I hurt them too much. You know yeah. what I mean? Or maybe yeah. you grow apart. Like, it's just like, I don't know what, like, but I'm not, I don't force it. Right. We're going to hop back into someone's life and be like, I'm better now. Let's all, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just my place to do that. Right. Um, they have to. I, I think when I was sick, I tried to shove myself into people's lives so much, right? Because I just was so desperate for love. But I just don't, that's just not how I, you know, I just respect people's boundaries. And it's like, you know, I, I, I remember going through COVID and I was like, I got a new phone. And all of my contacts were lost, right? And I, I had that moment where I was like, oh, I got to call these people and get their numbers. And I was like, no, 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 they have my number, right? Yeah. Like if they're going to, if they want to reach out to me, I still have the same phone number. And I had certain friends that I still haven't heard from them. And it's been like three years. And I was like, oh, okay. I was the one like initiate, you know what I mean? I was yeah. the one I was calling. And it's like, it's a hurtful message sometimes, but it's like loud and clear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you don't want me. That's okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, people just move on. Like, it just, it is what it is. It was, I, well, I spent a lot of time being sick while other people were having families and like moving on with their lives and like, or having their own, everybody's in their own mess. Usually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So like- we all have our, our stuff. And I feel like sometimes we assume that someone else basically, like, we can't assume that people are going to heal at the pace or the level that we have, or that we expect them to everyone's in their own process. And I think a part of your process that I also wanted to highlight is when you went into the rehab center and you connected with the woman who was um, the 30 plus years sober, the importance of mentorship. Yeah. I, I think it's like you walked in there and you saw someone that you would like to switch places with and took that person's guidance and it worked for you. So I wanted to highlight that as well. And I think there was something else that you said that I wanted to highlight, but now I can't remember. Well, it'll come to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you spoke a lot about your parents and their support. So I wanted to touch on that because I feel like our, our parents are often our loudest critics or oh, yeah. um, fans. <laughs> and yeah. it seems like no matter what you were experiencing, your parents were still some form of support system for you. How do you think that that's affected your outcome? Uh, I think it was like, it was vital, right? Like they, if they had, if I didn't have them, I wouldn't have ended up in the rehab center, right? Like they, they did what they could, but they were always like, they were always hopeful, right? And and I think in a lot of ways I would, sometimes I would think that, that, that overbearing thing was like, you're just expecting me to fail, you know, because I was so self-centered, but really what it was is they were so hopeful every time, you know, I just I cringe thinking about every time I went to like a different rehab, they would be so hopeful. Right. And I think that in a lot of ways, like those 30 days that I was there was the only time they got any relief. I realized that if I didn't have them, I, I would be dead. And the interesting thing is that I, when you asked me about my childhood, one thing I, I do know about my personality or the way that I am programmed was that I had a lot of existential fear, even really young. Like I remember being four years old and being like, mom and dad are going on vacation. What if they die? Like, will my sister be the one to take care of me? Like stuff that I think not many little kids think about, mm-hmm. but I was just had this fear and were, I was a very worried little girl. And I think that that part of that is kind of what like a lot of alcoholics are born that way, right? Where it's like, well, what's this world? And why, how do I fit in? And I'm just full of fear. And so uh, I had a lot of fear about my parents. And then when I 
I finally got well, as soon as I kind of like, I had this kind of spiritual awakening and personality shift and got sober, my mom was actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. And all of that stuff that I was so terrified, like I, if you had told me when I was sick, this was going to happen, I'd be like, I'll die. I'll die if something happens to her. Right. And then I had this, it was almost like, I believe, and I, maybe this is too out there, but I believe that my higher power was like, girl, you got to get it together. Cause your family's going to need you. Mm-hmm. Like this is down the pipeline. If you're not like, I think now if I was still living, like I was what my dad, who's been married to her for 52 years would be dealing wow. with me. It would be impossible, right? Now right. it's like it's to like get the groceries and do the cooking and take care of her and be a mother to her, right? Because she deserves it, right? So in a lot of ways, those roles have shifted, and I think that that is the underlying reason that my the universe was like, you got to, you need to get well because something really bad's about to hit your family and they need you. Wow, I'm I'm trying like I'm an emotional person, so I'm trying like to hold my emotions mm-hmm. in and. Usually 50% of the time we cry, (laughs) but I mean, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, your mom is experiencing that. And also, you know, for your dad to see the person that he's loved for so long and obviously the effects on you as well and your siblings, like, um, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's really like difficult, especially with the disease she has. It's like, it's a very tricky type of grief because it's like, you know, it looks like her and it smells like her, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, like she is very childlike. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's a different, it's just like a completely different dynamic. And like, you know, things will, and it's like, whenever something kind of like shitty happens in my life, my first instinct is like, I want to go to my mom, but it's yeah. not my mom. So any disappointments, almost like a double heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And the same that goes with anything really great. Like, I want to go and she, you know, my dad's so proud about the magazine and, and she just can't be there with me. Yeah. Um, but I need her where she is. You know yeah. what I mean? If I have to watch the same like first season of Grey's Anatomy every day, we'll do it. You know, yeah. like it's it's just being where she is. Um yeah. and just being happy that, you know, I get this time with her and that I it's not scary and it's not off it's just it is what it is. Every day it is what it is. You yeah. know? Um it's, listening to everything that you said from you know, where you were, what you experienced, how you've transmuted that pain into purpose. I mean, it sounds like it was a very difficult journey, but seeing where you are now, like, I haven't even known you that long and I'm proud of you. So I can only (laughs) imagine, you know, how, you know, your family feels and for yourself, like, how do you view life differently now? Um, I, I completely look at the world a complete as like with brand new eyes. You know what I mean? My personality has changed so much um, that the things that I like, I, the biggest thing is my whole life, I went through the world thinking like, everything's about me. I'm the center of the universe. If anything happens to you, it's it, how does that affect me? Right? If you're, if you're doing well, then I'm doing bad. I thought ever I thought the whole world revolved around me. And so with that comes a lot of like fear and anxiety. And it's not that fun to be around. And it's like, that's just how I thought it was. I had no sense of like spirituality or, or God consciousness, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And so now, I, like I said, like the first thing that I think about when I wake up every morning is like, how can I be useful? Right. Mm-hmm. And if I start to get full of self, I drop everything and go, you know, make a nice soup with my mom or I go meet with one of my other, like the alcoholics that I'm helping or, I, you know, I just have to get out of self because it's mm-hmm. just not, it's not, it's too dangerous for me. 
And the other thing that's really is like, I have to be rigorously honest because I, I know enough about my illness to know that I can't, secrets don't work for me. Lying doesn't work for me, right? Like those things, like, remember I told you about that gap between morality and behavior. Yeah. I have to really be on top of that, right? Yeah. It has to be completely melded. Otherwise I start to feel like that, ugh, like slipping into discomfort. I have to be really on top of myself and, and being honest and, and, and really like, my life's pretty simple, right? Like it's like, it's about other people first. At the end of my day, every single day, no matter what, I ask myself two questions. I say, did I drink today? And did I hurt anyone today? Mm-hmm. And if the answer's no, that is a damn good day for me, right? Because because of where I was. Like once you've been through something like, like lived and been through what I have, like anything else is just like luxury problems. Like if I'm alive today and like not drinking and not hurting people, like that's it. Right. So, yeah. so that for me is a successful day. Everything else is just gravy, like just luxury. Yeah. Wow. Your experience sounds very. OK, so I found a commonality with people that I've interviewed that have lost a loved one that's really close to them or they had a near death experience. It's basically your view of life and wanting to serve and make the world a better place and wanting to be helpful and not being, I'm going to say ego centered. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I've noticed that commonality. I don't know if it's proven anywhere, <laughs> but yeah. I've noticed You're that. Undecided. I think you have to be like, I think that like, I always think of it as like ripples, right? Like what is my, what is my impact? Because when I was sick, I would be like, all I cared about was myself and what I needed. Right. So I would go to like restaurants, for example, and I would like drink for three hours and then pretend I was going out for a smoke or something and run away right? Run out of the bill. And I didn't care because I just want, I got what I wanted and I left, but I never thought about like, what if that waitress has to like pay out of her own pocket and then she can't make her rent. And then like, you know what I mean? Like you don't know what the impact is of your actions. And I had to learn that. And so now I'm just so on top of it in terms of like, what's my, what's my impact here? Yeah. Right. Like I, every next, like I just do the next right thing. And as I'm living like that, the universe is showing up for me. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, you do the right thing and then good things happen. Whereas before I was like just so shitty and then shitty things kept happening to me because yeah. that's just how it works for me. Like that's what I believe. Um, so I'm just very conscious of like my impact on others and the world around me because I, if everyone could just do that and realize that it matters and that like <laughs> you're, you're not in a silo, yeah, right? Just not you. And it's, you know, there's all sorts of other stuff at play and we're all interconnected. Um, even if you don't see them or know them, right? Like it's like, you you impact people and you have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. So we all have responsibility for that. I think you know just just hearing the change in how you operate in life is beautiful to hear. It's like you know when you you gave the example of you know running out on your bill and then now thinking about you know the consequences of what yeah. it means for someone else. Like when we're in survival mode, we're only thinking about ourselves. We're only thinking about that moment. We're only thinking about how we can get through that moment. Um, so I guess that also speaks to you being in a much better place, a much higher vibration. Um, but you also mentioned fear quite a bit, um, from you were younger until now and the type of fear that you explained totally sounds like anxiety where, you know, we're constantly just worried about the future Yeah. and every day we allow anxiety and fear to hold us back from the things that we, we truly desire. So what do you think, or I guess, what are some of your fears that have pushed you I guess, to attain your dreams and your goals 
now? Honestly, I don't think I'm driven by any kind of fear anymore. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I believe, and, and the way that I explain it is that like, I think I was born with like, for whatever reason, like a little hole in my soul. Right. And so that was fear, right? That hole was fear. I'm just nervous. I'm scared and, and call it anxiety, call it fear, whatever it is. And so when I first started drinking, I remember the first time that I drank to just sil- like to silence that voice. Cause I was like, I remember I was like having this panic attack about like, what's death and what does it mean? And where do we go? And how can it be? And like, just like, and I poured like a big vodka. I was like in my early twenties and it wasn't the first time I drank, but it was the first time I drank to just like silence that fear. And it was nice because I got like a little, a couple hours of just relief. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of like my coping, right? Like when fear got too much. And then when I was starting to like unravel a lot and I was living in way more fear, which is that gap between my morality and my behavior, right? It's just anxiety and like shame and all of that stuff. Um, it was, it just got worse and worse. And so now I replaced like that hole in my soul. I've replaced with faith instead Mm -hmm. of fear right? Faith that one thing like that is actually like really freeing for me is like, I have no control over any of this. So like sitting around being terrified all night about the shoulda, coulda, wouldas or what's going to happen tomorrow. It's like, it's silly because like, as if I have any control over what's going to happen. Right. Right. That actually brings me peace. Cause it's like, no, 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 over to you, God. Like I, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I, oh, and so I don't spend a lot of time worrying. I don't think fear and faith can live together. Right. I really find it difficult for me to like, if you're going to be living in faith and the idea that like, you're just on this path and you're kind of a passenger in the car of life, you know, and, and things are going to work out how they're going to work out and you can't control it. Once you're there, it's hard to be terrified of everything. Yeah. Right. I, I strongly believe that faith and fear are both beliefs in the unknown. And I used to think that they could both exist in the same place, but I realized that if I trust God to do something for me that I believe in and I'm still fearful that I'm saying that I don't fully trust, don't, don't trust God. Yeah. Right. So it's, and it's affecting the result. Right. And I always take myself back to that. Like when I got sober, I made the decision to turn everything over to my higher power. Right. So when I start to claw back, you know, cause we do, right. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. Like this, this thing I can't explain got me to this point in my life, that's like completely better than anything I could have ever imagined. So who am I to start clawing back when it's like, Oh no, I want to take control of work or I wanted to, you know, I just like, yeah. I need to relinquish all control of all facets. And yeah. with that comes freedom. And like, I just sleep like a baby. Right. Because yeah. it's like, I don't know. I don't know what tomorrow is going to be, but I, I know I can't control what it's going to be. So yeah. we'll see, you know, yeah. and I heard one really, I heard a beautiful thing. Someone say, um, if I drink and I take this back to alcoholism, but she said, if I drink tonight, I know exactly what tomorrow will be like, but if I don't, I have no idea what tomorrow will be like. And that's pretty exciting. Wow. I love, right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you said you're not driven by fear. So typically there's four motivations that are driving us for everything that we do. There's fear, desire, duty, and love. What do you think is driving you right now? I think duty is a huge one for me. Um, I think I, I, I have a responsibility to not let my pain go to waste and to help my, my, my biggest desire is to help uh, equip younger women with the tools to go into work and say like for the next 25 year old Julie, whose boss kisses them to be like, have the strength and not be in a situation where that takes them down. Right. Right. And I think that like, 
that's my responsibility to use my experience and the experience of my you know, trusted advisory board and all the amazing women who I talk to who have had the exact same experience to not have to like waste 20 years of their career in that, that world that I was in. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a big sense of duty. And I think, I think love it rules everything. Right. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't necessarily have to like everyone, but I, but love and tolerance are so important. Um, because I can't like resentment for me is just like, it will take me down. Right. Like I can't. And so anyone, and and with that is that, you know, I don't ever like McKinney having this amazing podcast doesn't mean that I'm no good. Right. It's like, find out how McKinney did this and learn from her. Yeah. Right. Everybody around me who is doing better than me is a teacher. And I feel like we're all, if we can come together as women and like help instead of like tear each other down. And I really believe that, like, I don't just say it. But it's like, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like pave a way so that that there can be some actual meaningful change. And I think we all have to move in that same direction together. Otherwise, it's just pointless. Yeah, I agree with you. I believe that God doesn't run out of blessings. And just because you're being blessed in one area doesn't mean I can't be blessed in the same area or room, right? This idea that we have ingrained socially and culturally that there's like not enough room for a bunch of women to succeed. Whereas you look at like men and it's like a frat house of like money and cigars (laughs) and there's money for everyone. So why is it with women? It's like, there's only room for one. There's only one partner at the law firm. There's only one. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right. It doesn't make sense. And I feel like society has programmed us to view things that way in a sense where you'll go into an environment that is majority men and you may see one or two women. So it may be an unconscious belief that there's limitations for women. But I feel like right now, especially in 2023, with the amount of women that are leaders and, um, you know, entrepreneurs and building their own businesses, we're proving that there's no limitations and that, you know, we can all be blessed and all work together and all, you know, impact. Yeah, that old school thinking of like women having to scratch each other's eyeballs out to like get ahead. It's like so antiquated to me. And, and also, also like if we, if you just recognize that that's just a byproduct of patriarchy, right. Us doing that to each other is behaving exactly how they expect us to. Yeah which is like the worst thing ever, right? Like we don't want to be doing anything that the patriarchy expects us to do because that's misogyny in a nutshell, right? Is us behaving how they expect us to. Yeah. And so like a lot of women that I know are like either stepping out of the patriarchy completely and starting their own thing where they can do meaningful work like I did. And like, you know, a lot of women did, but there's also like knowing that there's a lot of women that don't have that luxury that are chartered accountants or lawyers or doctors that have to go into these like, like traditionally patriarchal systems and, and live there. Right. So they need to be equipped going in um, with kind of the tools that I'm trying to bring through to in defy, right. About how to conduct yourself and how to not, you know, have your voice silenced, how to occupy space in an unapologetic way. Yeah, I love it. So before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they can go and read the articles from Defy, where they can stay connected with you and learn more from you and about you. Yeah, so uh, defymagazine.ca is where the magazine lives. Um, and we're just working on our third issue that's going to come out um, on International Women's Day, March 8th. Nice. So I'm willing to get that together. I'm like, start a magazine, they said. It'll be fun, they said. Very <laughs> It's very busy because um, I'm the only one doing it. Um, so that's coming out March 8th, but you can read read the first and second issue. What I'm really trying to do with it is take women on a journey of understanding like things like the difference between misogyny and feminine, or sorry, misogyny and sexism, what mm-hmm. those things mean. 
and and helping us understand on the ground level so that we're all speaking the same language and understanding the words. Like, for example, um, and then the next issue, we're doing like a deep dive into what gaslighting really is and where mm. it came from, because I think words are thrown around so much that they almost lose yeah. meaning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, looking at the historical, you know, I think some of those things are really interesting for mm. us to like grasp onto but defymagazine.ca um follow us on instagram at defy.magazine um there's a lot of content there that you're not going to get um in the magazine but the magazine is free um i'm hoping to always keep it free because i want it to be as accessible as possible to as many women as possible and if you have any questions for me if you want to contribute if you want to advertise get involved i'm at julia defymag.ca awesome so i will definitely have the link so they can connect with you in the details section And um, the final segment of the show, kind of like a rapid fire, um, not really big on rules, so I might break my own rules, but you can answer one word, one sentence. If you feel like you want to unpack, then then you can. <laughs> You're going to be sorry you did that. <laughs> All right. What is one thing you forgive yourself for? Oh, gosh. My past. My past. Okay. Name a book <laughs> that has changed or greatly impacted your life. Uh, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann. Okay. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give your younger self? It's not that important. <laughs> I, w- I think that we spend a lot of, you know what I mean? Like nothing is yeah. really that important. Yeah. And, and also in tandem with that, like nobody's thinking about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? The reality is everybody's thinking about themselves all the time. Yeah. And I spend so much time with like, you know, body image issues or this or that. And it's like, if you go to a party, everybody's thinking about how they look and nobody's thinking about you. Yeah. And there's some freedom in that. So I think those are really like, just, yeah, calm, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> okay. Um, what have you become better at saying no to in the last five years? And that could be distractions, invitations, family. Oh my God. My, no, is just my favorite complete sentence. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I was working at a, a a magazine. I was the only female editor, and a lot of the the roots of Defy came from that experience. Like working, f- it was a magazine run by men for women. It was so weird, and uh, I found like I would always get in these situations where I'm like, I'm the I'm the editor of the magazine, and then at the end of the call with like a potential client, they'd be like, Well, Julie, we'll get back to you with the notes, and so immediately I'm looked at as the secretary, right? Yeah. Like and it was all the time. So I just started not doing any of that right like for my whole career I would do it because it was expected of me but something really beautiful happens when it's like did you take the notes and I'm like no sure didn't <laughs> right right like it's just no like it's yeah. like if it's not your job and not your responsibility don't don't do it and you yeah. don't have to do anything like it's kind of freeing also to learn that you don't have to do anything you don't want to do I really try hard not to do anything I don't <laughs> want to do it's because yeah. we do so much of my life like I don't I don't like getting up at 830. I never did. I don't like getting up to start work at 830. So I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. For me, if it's not a heck yeah, it's a hell no. Life's too short to be like just suffering through things that we don't want to be doing. Yeah. Which sounds like really idealistic, but like, and I don't want to sound like one of those women that's like, just don't do it, girl. But it's just don't like, you got to make sure everything's for me anyway, that everything's vibing with like, you're feeling like you're moving in the right direction. You you'll know if it's the right thing to be doing. I feel like that advice comes with some personal development work, because if you've worked on yourself, then it's easier for you to say no to things that don't align with your values. If someone hasn't, and they have a lot of work to do, and they're still, you know, holding on to a lot of trauma and childhood wounds and things like that, they have 
a very hard time saying no or not doing or people. Well, yeah, and I, and I had to do a lot of work, obviously, like the dirtiest kind of work. Um, but I think that uh, you have to clean the gunk out before you yeah. can have that. Like I heard someone say that the, the sunlight gets in through your wound. Yeah, through the cracks. Yeah. Which it, whatever, right? So it's like they, I needed to clean out all of that resentment and fear and shame and all of that in order for my higher power to get through. And now that I have that connection, I, I can like, I'm really in tune with it, but you can't, you're gunked up. Like you just can't. Yeah. Um, So you got to do a lot of that work so that you're kind of a clean vessel for it. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Last but not least, what do you wish women would do more of? Stand up for themselves. Just be themselves. Like, I just think that it's like be, just be authentic. Like women are just so powerful. And the only thing that keeps them down is like these limiting beliefs. Absolutely. Right. And like women are just the best. Right. And I, they are, you know yeah. what I mean? Like so interesting and so authentic and so honest and so fun and so intelligent. And it's like, if we just step into that and like, you know, the, the possibilities are endless. I really believe that. Yeah. That is a beautiful way to end the show. Thank you so much, Julie, for your transparency, so your authenticity, your energy, the wisdom that you shared, the nuggets that you shared. Um, I don't, I don't take, your time or your, your energy lightly. And I truly, truly appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you too. (laughs) And to all of you healers out there until next time, subscribe on all platforms. Don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple podcast. And I just want to thank each and every one of you that continues to listen each week to help us rank globally in the top 1.5% most popular show of almost over 3 million podcasts out there crazy but we would love to hear what resonated with you from today's episode what was your aha moment feel free to screenshot this week's episode and you can tag julie (laughs) at editor jules l so that's e-d-i-t-o-r-j-u-l-e-s-l or at defy.magazine and you can tag myself at the real mckinney smith healthy community is a healing community and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather survive and thrive so let's continue to heal her